They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the sayings and were afraid of him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. He said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than, to, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. There with, where the womb does not die and fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this place today to hear not only your word, but to receive you in your word, Lord. We, we study the inspired word of God to know the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you meet with us in this place? Would you meet with us in this place, unite us one to another and unite us to yourself? God, we love you and, and, and our lives belong to you. And so whatever you desire to do, whatever you desire to say, however you desire to speak, we say yes and amen. Lord, we want to hear your word and your truth. We're not here to listen to the wisdom or the words of humans. We are here to listen to the, the word of God. And so teach us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I learned to drive a stick shift in a 1984 Toyota Supra. They were not the coolest looking cars, but they were deceptively fast. Um, I remember I had this, one of the dumbest things I've ever done was getting this car up to 130 miles an hour on Highway 246 between Buellton and Lompoc. On that long straightaway before you get to that hill, I was coming home from a shift at AJ Spurs where I was bussing tables and a friend challenged me and I accepted and I was terrified. 130 miles an hour is fast. 
Uh, the funny thing about this story is it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I was talking about driving a stick shift. Uh, the day after I learned to drive a stick shift, I drove this car, this 84 Toyota Supra, to school. And I thought I was awesome. I thought I had the coolest car on campus. It was amazing. Lunchtime rolled around, and I got in the car with some friends that I was trying to impress and took it out, tore around town. The car started smelling like fire and oil. I did at least 10 years of damage to that clutch in 30 minutes. I had no idea what I was doing, just racing through the gears, redlining it, and just it, it, my friends were not impressed because I still did not know. I could get the car from point A to point B, but my, I did not know how to drive a stick shift. It doesn't come naturally to us. Driving a stick doesn't come naturally. Now, fast forward years later, um, I eventually, I was driving an, an, an 86 Mustang GT. The cars from the 80s just still have my heart, guys. They're just like, they, they, they weren't cool looking, but they were, but they were pretty cool. And I was driving, uh, again, it was a five-speed uh, in LA traffic, just not even thinking about it. Because after a while, after practice, after much time, driving a stick shift, which begins awkwardly, becomes second nature. And it takes time and it takes practice, but eventually we can do it without even thinking about it. And the same is true for living in unity. Real unity, kingdom unity within the church takes practice. Community can be incredibly awkward It can be incredibly uncomfortable. We can unintentionally do damage to one another. We can accidentally burn one another as I did to that clutch in my Supra. It can be uncomfortable, but unity is what Jesus calls us to. Unity is what Jesus has purchased by his blood, not only uniting us to himself, but uniting us one to another. See, scripture never calls the church, never calls believers to attain unity. We're never called to attain unity. Jesus has attained unity. But we are called to maintain unity in the bond of peace. And so as a church, this is what we are called to. It's what Jesus has accomplished, but we don't get there overnight. It takes work. It takes practice. But over time, kingdom unity will become more natural. It'll become more life-giving. And so our passage today demonstrates many ways that unity can be challenged and disrupted in the body of Christ. But Jesus teaches his disciples what practices will be essential for living in light of the unity that he has given them. And eventually, even unity can become a habit. See, in our passage, Jesus teaches about his death again. It begins by him saying that the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the hands of men, and he is going to suffer, and he's going to die, but three days later, he's going to rise again. And Mark has a pattern in his gospel. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. The disciples do something dumb, and then Jesus teaches them about discipleship. If you remember back a few weeks ago, Jesus says that he's going to die, he's going to raise from the dead, And then Peter rebukes him and then Jesus rebukes him back and then teaches them that discipleship in Christ is going to be a life of denying yourself, picking up your cross and following him. And so here Jesus teaches about his death and resurrection again and immediately they start arguing about who is the greatest. 
and, and boasting that they shut down an unknown exorcist because he wasn't a part of their group. And so this is a tragic scene. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem to suffer for the sins of the world, and his disciples are jockeying for position. Think of that. Now, many of you have experienced the loss of someone that you love in life. And, 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 and it's tragic. And it always shocks me in the people in my life that I've lost, how quickly, oftentimes, someone's most beloved members of their family and, and friends, how quickly they begin to start arguing over someone's estate. Maybe this hasn't been the case in your family. Praise God. But for those of you that have, you understand this, that they say, they say there's five stages of grief, but it seems that in my family or when people that I have lost, they, people add this other stage of grief before denial, it's greed. And they start, they start arguing about what belongs to who and who's getting what. And so think of this scene with Jesus. He is walking to his death. And they're starting to parcel up his land and jockey for position and establish their rank while he's still conscious in the hospital. This is a tragic scene. Jesus is going to die and they're trying to establish their rank. And so Jesus graciously, lovingly calls them to gather around and he sits down, excuse me, and he begins to teach them. See, competition and self-promotion were common methods of establishing honor in this culture, this first century culture. Competition and self-promotion were, were common, and it's common in our culture as well. But kingdom unity, the kind of unity that Jesus has purchased, the kind of unity that he's creating in his kingdom, it turns the cultural values on its head. And so Jesus says that the greatest in the kingdom are those who serve one another. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The corporate world in the last couple of decades has begun to discover the value of servant leadership. I always love it anytime professionals or, or doctors or psychologists or scientists or whoever the authorities are, like finally discover something new that was in the Bible all along, right? Like, like uh, hey guys, it is really important to rest, Right? We need days off and rest. Thanks, Johns Hopkins. Like, it's, it's in the text. It's in script. He told us all along to rest. And now it's this, it's this new study. Right? So in the last couple of decades, people have discovered that servant leadership is really important. It's really valuable. I read a book recently by a Navy SEAL called Extreme Ownership. The author talks about servant leadership and how if, we, if, we, if, if you, your team knows that you respect them, that you have their back, that you are willing to accept uh, uh, responsibility for the failures of the team, and you, and you generously lavish upon your team the, 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 the reward for doing a good job, he says they will follow you anywhere. And while this seems true and this seems like a good thing, doesn't it still smack of self-promotion? I'm going to serve you so that you'll follow me. And people go, servant leadership, it makes a big deal. 
It's, it's really important in the corporate world. It's like that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. If the only basis of your relationship, the motives of your relationship is to influence someone, you're not their friend. They're not your friend. You're using them or you're being used by them. And so we don't serve people so that they will follow our agendas. We serve them because we love them and we want them to succeed. That's what a good coach does. A good coach will willingly fall behind the scenes on the sidelines to see his team do well, to see the individual players thrive in their role. And this means that serving one another in the church requires us to lay down our pride. To serve one another requires us to lay down our pride. The call to self-service is all over the New Testament. Jesus will say eventually in the Gospel of Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though the disciples here are are boasting and, and fighting to establish their honor, the apostle Paul would eventually receive these words and interpret the words in his instruction to the believers in Rome and tell them that they should outdo one another in showing honor. The only competition that belongs in the body of Christ is to outdo one another in showing honor. This is the kind of competition that we should have among disciples, honoring one another. And so this call to serve, it doesn't only apply to our individual relationships within our individual, our own church community, but it extends to all believers everywhere. This call extends to all believers everywhere. See, the disciples had not only tried to jockey for position among their, their, their 12 but they also try to shut down a man who was casting out demons just because he wasn't a part of their group. See, so not only the competition is not only between them as individuals, but they're trying to corner the market on Jesus and not allow anyone outside of their group to have any say or, or, or authority or success or or. Uh, uh, advancing the kingdom of God. They're trying to corner the market on that. And so they would rather leave a person in spiritual bondage than to support the ministry of someone outside their group. Would we rather allow someone to remain in spiritual bondage than to see another ministry succeed? May that never be so among us, church. May that never be so. Jesus says, knock it off. He tells the disciples to knock it off. We can often be tempted to limit Jesus' power to our own circles. Churches and denominations, though, we stray too far if we try to make salvation an exclusive right to our own particular brand or or tribe or denomination or family of churches. We go too far. If we try to retain exclusivity on Jesus and salvation. And so Jesus responds by telling them, the one who is not against us is for us. The one who's not against us is for us. In the war that is is taking place between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God has invaded this world. and, And is at war with sin and Satan and death. 
And so persecution and trials and suffering will come in this war against Satan's kingdom. But God blesses those who rebel against the enemy by offering kindness to believers. Even a cup of cold water, he says. In uh, the, the Jewish people who were being uh, uh, persecuted by, by Nazi Germany in, in World War II, there was lots of people who actively hid the Jewish people from the SS so they wouldn't be imprisoned, so they wouldn't be killed. And they saved countless lives. But there were also many people who weren't necessarily active in in hiding them and, and bringing them into freedom, but they didn't turn in those who did. See, there are people in this world who are not necessarily believers, but who will be sympathetic to what Christians experience. And this was the case in Rome. The disciples in Rome are who Mark is writing his gospel to. They were experiencing fiery persecution. It was difficult to find anyone who was willing even to associate with them enough to give them a cup of cold water. And God says that they won't lose their reward. That if even these people won't lose their reward for being sympathetic to God's people, then this man, who is clearly a follower of Jesus, has been endowed with the authority of Jesus to drive out demons, is for their cause. He is for Jesus. He is for the kingdom of God. Just because he wasn't one of the 12 didn't mean he didn't have the right to serve the kingdom of God in this way. And so church, Jesus reminds us today that though we may love our church, we may love our, our community, or you may identify with a particular denomination or theological tradition, we are not to exalt ourselves. We are not to exalt our church. We're not to exalt our philosophies. We exalt Jesus. Nothing added, nothing taken away. We exalt Jesus. That is what we are here for. So we're not to be reality people. We're not to be Baptist people or Presbyterian people or any other people. We are kingdom people. Reality Carpinteria is a kingdom church. We are for the kingdom. Jesus calls us to be kingdom-minded. The way we fight for unity is not only by serving one another, but by being kingdom-minded. There's a good reason. There's good reasons to be a part of particular churches or, or celebrate how God has used particular communities in your life and in the world to, to advance the kingdom. But God knows who belongs to him. And if anyone is for Jesus, then we are for them. And so we are to serve one another. We're to partner with one another, to celebrate together as the kingdom of God expels the kingdom of darkness in this world. And so we're called to serve. We're called to bless. We're called to honor. We're not to be preoccupied with our own glory or our own tribe that we miss out on God's kingdom work. And so Jesus takes a child into his arms in this text. And as an illustration of how far they are to go in serving others, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. See, children in the first century world were not viewed as children are viewed today in our culture. See, children uh, in our culture are seen as cute 
and innocent. And, and we, we generally, as, even as a, as a culture, we regard children as a blessing, sometimes in more communities than others. But the way children are viewed in our culture is not the way they were viewed in the first century culture. See, in in the first century ancient Near Eastern culture, children were seen as the least in society. They were seen not as as particularly obedient or or helpful. Uh, They were regarded as the property of their father, and therefore they had no rights. Children were the least in society. But most significantly, children in the first century required a ton of work, and didn't really give much in return. And so the command to receive a child in Jesus' name means to welcome all people, to receive all people, to love all people, regardless of how much investment they may require or how much they are able to contribute. We are called as the body of Christ to receive all, All people, regardless of how much effort it may take on your part or how much they are able to contribute, we are to receive one another as little children. If we would practice kingdom unity at Reality Carpinteria, then we must receive one another, not just into this building, not just into this sanctuary, but to receive one another means to receive one another into our lives, to welcome one another into our lives, to be invested in their life and to desire to see them grow in in, in wisdom and maturity in Christ and to be willing to invest that into their lives regardless of how much they are able to invest into ours. This is what the word hospitality means. It doesn't mean welcoming people into your home and making them feel comfortable. It means welcoming people into your life. Not to make them feel loved, but because they are loved. Because Jesus loves them. And so we are called to receive all people, regardless of what they contribute. We are called to receive the lowly. Whether this is the poor, the infirm, those with mental illness, those who are difficult to love, whether this means we are called to receive the Republicans or the Democrats or the socialists, the immigrants, whether we are called to receive the vaccinated, the unvaccinated, whoever you are and whoever the person is sitting next to you and across the room, if they are in Christ, you are called to receive them because Jesus loves them, regardless of how difficult that may be on you. We receive one another as little children. And so by calling us to receive those who are regarded least in society, we don't just invite them into the building, we invite them into our lives. See, at the end of this passage, there's a lot of talk. You notice there's a lot of talk about salt, salt and fire. It's kind of some strange passages. But one of the exhortations that Jesus makes is to have salt in or to have salt among yourselves. Right? This is actually an ancient figure of speech, which actually refers to sharing a meal. To share the salt of someone's table was to share a meal with them. And so to share a meal was symbolic of sharing life with someone. So imagine a community 
that didn't divide over high or low social status or didn't divide over subcultures or interests or didn't divide over cultural background or things like that, but all came together and were inviting one another into their homes and sharing meals regularly, not just with their friends or people who looked like them or people who were into the same things, but they sought out the poor, they sought out the lowly, they sought out those who were struggling with, with mental illness or physical disabilities, whatever it may be, and, and invited those who were never able to return the kindness and committed to receiving one another around a fellowship table, around a meal. That is a community that is at peace with one another. That is a community that we read about in Acts chapter 2. This is what the church was doing. This is who the early church was to inviting people, meeting regularly, not just in the temple, but in their homes day by day sharing meals with one another, praying with one another. This was a context where in the same home, sharing the same meal at the same table might be a slave and their master. And they were one in Christ. They were received because they were loved. And so as a community of God's people, we are called to receive one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to deny, lay down our pride, welcome one another, not just into our church or into our homes, but into our lives. Jesus' kingdom community is a community that is at peace with one another. We don't exalt ourselves. We don't marginalize other communities or disenfranchise those who require more time or energy. We don't prioritize people based on what they're able to contribute. We serve one another. We are for one another. We receive one another. Because there is a war in this world. Church, there is a war. And it is not with any person in this room. The war in this world is a war between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. Our war, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the spiritual realm. There is a war in this world and the enemy would love to bring it into the walls of the church or into your relationships and may it never be. Jesus warns the disciples that those who are most vulnerable to spiritual injury in the church, come at the hands of those who should know better. And so the division and the discord, the disunity, the people who are affected most are are those new in the faith, those little children in the faith who very early on see what's going on recognize that it's just like the world and throw in the towel. Why should I try if the church is just like the world? But we should never be just like the world. And so if we wound those in the faith by sinning against them or leading them into sin, there is going to be serious consequences. Jesus said it'd be, it'd be better for you to be drowned in the sea. It would be better for their lives to be tragically cut short than to end up suffering in hell for eternity by leading someone else into stray. And so he says that our war is not with one another, but with the sin that wounds, the sin that divides, the sin that destroys. And so we are at war. We are to wage war against sin. And so if we should practice unity, we not only need to serve one another by laying down our pride, And by receiving one another, we are to pursue unity by waging war against sin. And so Jesus gives us this grotesque and yet beautiful picture. 
This is an ugly but beautiful picture here. Jesus uses exaggerated language to depict the severity with which we must cut off sin in our lives. He says, if there's anything in your life causing you to sin, if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. If your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. Your foot, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to go into hell a whole person. And so he's using exaggerated language to make his point. He's not actually prescribing self-mutilation. Scripture clearly forbids self-mutilation throughout the the Old Testament, but he's using it to illustrate a point. He's saying if there's anything in your life, no matter how precious, that is leading you into sin, we should seek to remove the stumbling block from our own lives and not allow anything to interfere with getting it out. So I know a man who takes the long way home from work so that he doesn't drive by the bar where he spent his years of alcoholism because every time he drives by it, he's tempted to turn into the parking lot. I know people who have gotten rid of their, their gaming systems, their TVs, had, uh, had, had friends put parental locks on their phones because of the, the temptations to sin. I know people who it's probably going to be wise to get rid of their smartphones because of the constant temptation at the hand, the, the, just access to everything and all sorts of evil. And so church, nothing is worth keeping in your life if it keeps you from Jesus and keeps you from God's people. Nothing is worth keeping in your life if it keeps you from Jesus and keeps you from God's people. And so this has implications not only for our personal lives, but for our community as well. Because while sin will wreak havoc on our spiritual life, it will also have disastrous effects on the believing community. In the same way that we should rather enter life maimed than to go into hell as a whole person, we should also rather be physically dismembered than to see division come to the body of Christ. We should rather be torn limb from limb than to see the body of Christ at war with one another. Now, this doesn't mean that every church should now merge and unite under the same human leadership. What it means is that every church is already united under the same divine leadership. That we are not called to attain unity. We are called to maintain unity. Unity. We are already united in Christ. The question is not whether or not we have unity. It's whether or not we are living in light of the unity that we have. And so think of college sports, right? Let's say you play basketball, you play college basketball, but you have someone that, that, that plays soccer for, for your school. You, you love the basketball team. You, you have a focus. You are intent on, on, on working your tail off to see the basketball team succeed. That doesn't mean you start heckling the soccer team. You are united under the same mascot, under the same school colors, fighting for the pride of the institution. And so all of the churches in this town... All of the churches across this country that are submitted to Christ and preaching the gospel, those who are for Jesus, we are for them. 
Make no mistake, Reality Carpenteria is for Jesus. Christ Church Carpenteria is for Jesus. Carp Community Church is for Jesus. Carpenter's Chapel is for Jesus. Carpenteria Valley Baptist Church is for Jesus. Family Baptist Church is for Jesus. Faith Lutheran is for Jesus. And so we are for them. And the way we practice this unity is by laying down pride, waging war against sin, not against each other, but against sin. And lastly, and most importantly, by following Jesus. By simply following Jesus. See, Jesus has shown us the way. Jesus has shown us what this looks like. Jesus is the servant of all. See, Jesus laid down his pride. He humbled himself. Not sinful pride, but the pride that he deserves because he's God. Sets it aside. Emptied himself. Humbled himself. Left his luxury. Left his glory in heaven. He left his exalted place to take on our lowly status. Church, we have nothing to offer Jesus but our lives. He had nothing to receive from us but our lives. But because he loved us and because he desires peace with us, because he wants his kingdom to be filled with those he loves, he lived a life of sacrifice and service. He poured out his life in obedience and grace. He went to the cross, not just to suffer and die, but to receive in himself the penalty for our sin. Jesus was cut off from the world. Jesus suffered a tragic, premature death. He was cut off from the world. He was cut off from his intimacy with his father in heaven, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off so that you could be grafted in. He was cut off from intimacy with the father so that you, as Peter says, could become a partaker of the divine nature. In the same way that we should rather cut off the parts of us that are leading us into sin and taking us from Jesus. Jesus' whole person was cut off so that we could come in. And he invites us into his banquet. He receives us to his banquet table. There's going to be a feast in the kingdom of God that he shares with his people because we have been made one with him because of his grace. And so we receive this grace through faith by trusting in the finished work of Christ and then we follow him in it. He was cut off so that we could be received, so that we could come into the family of God, so that we could celebrate around the banquet table in the kingdom. See church, the reason that we can be the servant of all is because God himself has served us. The reason that we can be kingdom-minded is because Scripture says that we have been given the mind of Christ, the King. The reason that we can receive others is because we have been received. We don't deserve that. We don't particularly have anything that we can contribute. And Jesus laid down his life to receive us into the kingdom so we can receive anybody Because we have been received by God. The reason that we can cut off sin, the sin that divides, and experience unity with one another is because Jesus was cut off so that we could be united to God. And so we follow him 
We follow his example. We follow his way of life. We ask him to give us his heart for his people so that we can live the way that he lived, so that we can love the way that he loved. And if we follow him, we can be certain that we will be treated like him. This is a warning throughout scripture that the servants are not greater than the master, that if they hated Jesus, we too will be hated. We too will suffer. We'll experience suffering and hardship and persecution. And this is what's meant when Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Remember I said at the end of this passage, there's all these stuff about salt and fire. Jesus says we'll be salted with fire. It's actually a reference to a passage in Leviticus that requires the sacrifices to be sprinkled with salt before the sacrifice is made. Because see, salt purifies, salt preserves, and salt enhances flavor. And so the sacrifices were sprinkled with salt. But the other illustration in here is fire. Now, fire is is often a, a representation of suffering, the fiery trials And so Jesus says that everyone will be salted, preserved, purified, enhanced through suffering. We will be salted with fire. And so when we follow Jesus, we will be purified. We will be preserved. We will be enhanced even, sanctified, made mature like Christ. But these things will come through difficulty and yet it's not for nothing. The difficulty in your life, the persecution in your life, the suffering in your life, it is not for nothing. See, Jesus was the sacrifice for all upon the cross. And in the same way, though our lives and our suffering does not atone for sin in the way that Jesus' life and suffering and death atoned for sin, but Jesus is still saying that even the lowliest disciple, even the least of these who belong to Christ are a pleasing sacrifice to him. Whoever you are, whatever you encounter in life, if you believe in Jesus, the suffering in your life is not a sign of God's disapproval. It's his vote of confidence that he loves you, that he's purifying you, that he's preserving you, that he's sanctifying you, that he's bringing about something more beautiful in you that you could possibly ever imagine. He delights in you. You are a pleasing sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, to offer your lives as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service to God. Jesus here is saying that even though we encounter these difficulties and even though unity is difficult, when we endure and persevere and pursue one another, that we are living in light of the fact that our lives are a pleasing sacrifice to God. And so as we serve one another, as we war against sin, and as we follow Jesus together, we are united. We are practicing unity. Jesus is glorified and our lives are pleasing to him. And so as a church, as individuals, and as a community, we are called to lay down our lives for one another and to celebrate the unity that we were made for. You were made for unity. You were made to glorify God in the way that you love him and the way that we love one another. Despite our differences, we are united in Christ. 
despite our generation gaps, despite our cultural backgrounds, despite our interests, despite our policies, despite all of these differences that the world would love to cause to divide us, despite all of these things, because of what Jesus has done, we have been united to him and to one another. And so as a church, we follow him together. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We pray that in this time together, as we respond in worship, Lord, that you would give us a vision of the cross. Lord, that you would give us a vision of the sacrifice that you have made for us. Lord, we pray that you would would bring us to the foot of the cross in our time together. Lord, that we would look up and see the one who has laid his life down for us, the one who has paid it all. Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision of yourself, a vision of your glory, a vision of what Paul says in Philippians 2, that you humbled yourself and then were given the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision of the cross. Lord, that the reality of the life that you have laid down for us would root deeply into our minds and our hearts. That we may, lose, that we may, may follow you by laying down our own lives laying down our own lives for one another, serving one another, receiving one another because we belong to you. God, I pray that you would give us a vision of the cross and what you have done so that we could be united to yourself. And may we respond in gratitude and worship. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.